Okay, I'm pulling on my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another drive to work. Okay, so today is another design day where I talk about the design of a set I did or set that I was on. Although today I actually did it. Um, today we're going to talk about Odyssey, a set from long ago. So let me show up and give a little context of where this fits in for me. Um, so the first set I ever did was Tempest, which I talked about in my very first podcast. Um, the second set I ever did was Urza's Destiny? Either that or Unglued. I've tried to remember the order. But anyway, I did Urza's Destiny. I did Unglued. Um, the fourth set I did um, was um, Odyssey. And uh, I, at that point, I, the only large set I had done was Tempest. And then, so what was going on at the time was um, Mike Elliott and I were the two major people doing design. And so we were constantly jockeying to try to, to get sets and, you know, every once in a while, um, you know, Joel and Bill were giving sets to other people. Um, but I, I definitely was in the mix, and I, about once a year I got to do something. Um, although, um, for the point of Odyssey, it actually had been a little while, because I, I had done Urza's Destiny and Unglued, but I did not do anything in Mercadian Mask Block, and I, while well, I was very involved in Invasion Block, I did not leave the design for any of the sets in Invasion Block. Um, so I had not led a design in a little while, and I was itching. So I was very excited for Odyssey. Um, and so today, I'm going to talk all about uh, how Odyssey came to be. So let me start with the design team. Um, so the design team for Odyssey is interesting, because um, it was five people. Mike Donay, Richard Garfield, William Jockish, and Henry Stern. So I don't know how many of those names you recognize, so I'm going to talk about them. Um, okay, Richard Garfield, I'm sure you guys know. I've talked about Richard before. Maybe one of these days I'll do a whole podcast about Richard. Um, but anyway, we've talked plenty about Richard. So let me talk about the other three. Um, okay, we'll start with Mike Donay. So Mike Donay, um, I got to know Mike. His, his brother, Jeff Donay, for a long time worked at Wizards doing organized play and, in fact, ran the Pro Tour for a while. He was the tournament organizer that ran the Pro Tour. Um, and I got to know Mike through Jeff. Um, so, oh, so here's how the story goes. So we were at Origins. Origins is a um, game convention run by Gamma. Um, and uh, Bill had asked me if there was anybody that I thought would be a good fit for R&D. And I said, yes. I thought there were three people. I gave him three names. So the first was Randy Bueller. The second was Brian Weissman, who, uh, for those who know your Pro Tour history, was one of the first real deck builders. Um, he built a deck called The Deck which was the first real magic deck that ever... In fact, the first magic deck, for starters. I mean, it, it was really the first one that got disseminated. And it was the first... He was the first person, really, on a public level to, to explain that concept of card advantage. And his deck took great advantage of card advantage. Uh, in fact, one of my favorite stories is... Um, I lived in L.A. at the time, and we were traveling up to San Francisco to go to a tournament. We were playing, in a, like, the winner got a set of Legends or something. Um... And we were buying moats in L.A. to take with us because down in L.A., moats cost like a dollar. And up in San Francisco, moats cost like three or four dollars. So we could buy a whole bunch of moats and then sell them. And the reason moats were so expensive was this is in the early days where information wasn't disseminated quite as fast because the Internet was young. And in, in San Francisco, uh, everyone was playing the deck because of Brian. And so moats were very expensive because everyone wanted them. But down in L.A., nah, no one knew anything about that. So moats weren't expensive. Um, I also love the fact that when I say expensive, you have three, four dollars. Anyway, 
That, there was a point in time, by the way, where, like, I did not want to buy Moxes because they were, they were, like, four or five dollars. Who pays five dollars for a card? Anyway, a little, a little, a little history of magic. Um, the third person who I recommended was Mike Donay. So, I don't remember quite what happened. I do know the following. Of the three people I recommended, only one, which was Randy Bueller, sat and talked with Bill. The other two basically didn't end up meeting with Bill. And at the end of the thing, Bill's like, so these people you recommended, they really want to work at Wizards? Um, what happened with Mike was, Mike was the head judge of U.S. Nationals. Um, and so he ended up not being able to meet with Bill because he was just too busy all week running U.S. Nationals. And so I explained this to Bill. And so what happened was Mike was in town visiting his brother, Jeff. Um, and so I got Bill to my house uh, and I got Mike to my house. And the interview to interview Mike for the job was ended up doing it in my house because I sort of got everybody together. Um, in fact, one of the themes today, uh, you'll see again with Henry, is somehow I recommend people, and then I have to go through a lot of energy to actually get them hired. So, um, but anyway, it worked out well. Mike ended up getting hired. Um, now, Mike was very much uh, a developer. He was on a few design teams. He was on this team. I know for sure he was also on um, Onslaught. Uh, but he did much more development than design. He was much more of a developer. Um, he also uh, spent some time on Magic and then w- would also spend some time on Dungeons & Dragons. Um, but anyway, uh, Mike, was, Mike was on this team, and I think this was his first design team. So William Jockish was... So I talk about there being several waves of R&D. So the first wave were the people that basically were the playtesters that worked with Richard. So talking Scaff Elias, Jim Lynn, Dave Petty, obviously Richard himself. That was like the first wave. So the second wave of R&D was the ones where they were all busy doing other things, so Wizards was expanding and doing other games and stuff. And so they hired some people to take over the running of Magic. And that would be me, Bill Rose, William Jockish, Mike Elliott, and Henry Stern, although Henry would come later. I'll explain that in a second. Um, So Bill and William and I all started in October of 1995. Mike would start in January of 96, and Henry would start in September of 96. Um, So anyway... Uh, William got the job because he wrote a letter to Richard Garfield. Now, William was a math professor, um, and Richard also, if you know your history, was once upon a time a math professor. Uh, I think they both were in commutatorics, uh, which is counting for those who don't know math. Um, and, uh, well, I mean, fancy, fancy counting. Um, and so, uh... Uh, William wrote a letter, and he just... I'm not even sure what he wrote. I never saw a letter, but he impressed Richard. He just impressed him, and Richard knew they were looking for people, and so Richard just offered him a job. And uh, that's the only person I know who just, like, sort of blindly wrote a letter and ended up with a job in R&D. So William is interesting. Um, William was definitely, of of that second wave of people, was the most developer-y. I mean, I guess Henry was also very developer-y. Um, but, but, I mean, Mike and I were more designer types, even though we were hired as developers. Bill sort of split the middle, you know, did design, did development, you know, definitely, uh, kind of in the middle. But William was, like, a developer in the sense that, like, his head was, you know, like, he knew numbers, and he he would crunch things. Um, but the interesting thing about William was, William has some very quirky ideas about deck building. And so, one of his concepts was that you had to be careful if a card in number would be a problem. So he would allow himself to use as many as he wanted of a card because he was trying to figure out whether this, this idea in conglomerate would be a problem. 
Uh, in fact, one time, I forget which core set, but like he built a deck with some crazy number of Psychic Venoms. So Psychic Venom is a blue enchant land that whenever enchanted land is tapped, it does two damage to its controller. Uh, and somehow he made a deck that was crazy good and won and convinced us not to put Psychic Venom in a core set, which is kind of funny because it's, it's a weak card. Um, but somehow, in, 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 if you have enough of them, he, he had some deck you couldn't beat. Um, although, once again, I should stress, when, we, when I do my R&D uh, podcast about sort of the waves of R&D, the, we, the second wave was, was not what we think of as modern-day developers, really. That mostly happened starting in the third wave. I mean, William and uh, Henry were the closest we had you know, to sort of real developers. In fact, Henry, I would argue, is the very first, like, off-the-pro tour developer, um, William was kind of the pre-us uh, doing that. So one of the things that happened in the early days is that, um, you imagine, there wasn't like, like right now, R&D are people who like grew up living and breathing magic. And that just wasn't, that didn't exist when I got hired. I mean, magic was only a couple years old. So um, mostly they hired people that were just kind of smart and that, you know, loved magic. But uh, we, we weren't as, as, I mean, it hadn't been as much a part of our lives because it just hadn't been up that long. Um, so William was a hoot. Um, my, my favorite William story so I used to explain that when I used to go home I'd have fun stories for each of the people so that I, I, I could tell eccentric stories about my coworkers. Uh, the story I used to tell about William is um, William used to order pizza every day that, and they'd have it delivered to him so one day we're in the pit talking or something and William's phone rings and he picks it up and he goes yeah yeah it's William yeah pepperoni okay bye and we're like what was that he goes Oh, it's a pizza place. They hadn't heard from you, so they called me. And we're like, you got the pizza place to call you? <laughs> so anyway, that's like, Wayne was dedicated. He, he managed to get the pizza place. He didn't have to call the pizza place. They called him. So anyway, I thought that was funny. Um, okay, the last person on the design team was Henry Stern. So when I, uh, once upon a time, I worked at a game store called The Gamekeeper. I've talked about this. And um, I was the one that got um, magic into the store. Um, I, I, I learned about it, and then I was very... I, I bought it at a convention, and anyway, I came back all gung-ho. So we have to buy it. We have to buy it. This is, a, this is the best game ever. Um, and I, 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 I convinced my store to start carrying it. Now, one of the things we did in the store was we used to always open one of a game so we can demo the game. Because what I learned is if you demo a game, it increases your ability to sell it, I mean, 10, 20, 30-fold. Uh, for example, by the way, one of the things I was very, very proud of. So there's a game called Set which is a pattern recognition game, if you've never played it. Um, you basically, uh, I can't even describe it. You have, you have to kind of see it. But it, it's this neat game. It's this little card game. Not too expensive. Um, so there were 26 Gamekeeper stores at the time I worked there. I was working part-time at my store. So I started demoing set because I found it was a really good, it was an easy game to sell because it was a neat game. A lot of people didn't know about it. And if you got someone to play with you for a few minutes, they would buy it. All you had to do is show it to them. They play it and go, ooh, that's cool, and they buy it. Um, I managed to sell more set for our store, and I was the only one in my store selling set. No one in my store was selling it. Our store sold more sets of me than the other 25 stores combined. So, anyway, uh, I always thought it was funny that, like, part-time, I sold more of this game than everybody else in the entire business. Um, and that's because I demoed it. Um, and so I had magic, and I would demo magic. And what, one of the things I did was... Um, I started getting a hang of the rarities. I mean, they weren't official all the time, but I got a good sense of what cards were showing up, what rarity. And so I had a little, little thing I allowed, which was if people came in, I let them trade with the, um, 
demo uh, deck, as long as they traded one for one, the cards had to not be in the deck that I had, so you couldn't duplicate things, and you had to match rarity, and, and I, I was the determiner of rarity. Um, so anyway, Henry Stern came in my shop one day, and I... He, I guess he already played Magic, but I, I let him trade stuff out of the deck. And then he came back, and he, he used to come back every once in a while just to see, you know, if there are new cards in the starter deck. Um, and so it was funny because uh, we, we built up a rapport kind of just him stopping in. Uh, and then at one point, uh, he invited me to something, and then we realized that we knew each other from the games. Like, I, I guess I, I went on some, you know, Magic Net or something, and... And I was looking for other people in L.A. to play Magic with, and he responded. And then we figured out that we knew each other from the game store. And then, like, he lived two blocks away from me. Um, so anyway, uh, Henry and I became friends. So when I moved up to L.A., I'm sorry, moved from L.A., uh, at some point I was asked if I knew anybody. This is a common question. Of, uh, did I know anybody who would make a good fit for R&D? And I said, oh, yes, my friend Henry I thought would be a good fit. And so uh, they asked Henry for stuff. And Henry dragged his feet for a while. I'm not sure why. Um, but he took a while to get it. And finally, he set up his stuff. And um, one day, I was looking through something. And I, I, saw, I saw a bunch of papers. And like I realized that there was like a, a, a no pile. And that Henry had been moved to the no pile. And I didn't know why. And so, um, around the same time, we had done the very first Pro Tour in New York. I talked about that on another podcast. And we made a video, which, by the way, deserves its own podcast because the making of the video is, is quite the story. Um, anyway, uh, we needed to redo the commentary on the video because it was all messed up. And so I wanted to do a color commentator, which I used a guy named Sean Carnes, who worked in R&D. Uh, at the time, actually, he might not have been in R&D yet. He might have still been in um, customer service. Um, anyway, Sean Carnes was known as Captain Volume. One, at one point in the pit, by the way, I was the third loudest member of the pit. For those that don't know, I'm, I'm very loud. Um, and and uh, number one was Sean Carnes, Captain Volume, who used to scream things at the top of his lungs. I merely talk loudly. I don't scream. Um, well, sometimes. Okay, so um, I used Sean to be my color commentator. Sorry, used me my play-by-play, and I needed a color commentator. And so I got uh, Henry. I brought Henry up from L.A. because he was not too far away. He could stay in my place. Uh, good at Wazzy times. He, Henry stayed at my place. Um, but anyway, I brought Henry up, and I had a, t- two goals in mind. One was, I thought Henry would be good, but the second was, I wanted people to meet Henry. I felt like, you know, Henry's, whatever, his letter, whatever, whatever his resume hadn't made a good first impression. Henry, by the way, is funny, is before Henry worked for Wizards, he uh, was an engineer that literally did, um, made rockets for, for Hughes. And so we joked that Henry was literally a rocket scientist. Um, that R&D had hired rocket scientists, or a rocket scientist. Um, but anyway, I got Henry to meet everybody. And once Henry met everybody, he's very personable, that he really sort of turned it around, and we got him off the n- no pile onto the maybe pile, and then eventually he ended up getting a job. Uh, Henry actually got the job but asked to play in Worlds, like pushed back his starting of his job so he could play in Worlds of 96. And he ended up top four, and he actually did back-to-back top fours. Uh, which is a feat not too many people have done. Um, so he he sort of left the Pro Tour on a high of like you know, doing really well in his last tournament. Um, and so we brought Henry. So it's interesting, by the way, if you've noticed as I'm talking about, Mike and William and Henry were all developers and not really designers. Um, now obviously, Richard was a designer and I was a designer. So this was a development-heavy team. Um, like I said, both Richard and I are pretty pretty 
pretty good at making lots of cards, so we were fine. Um, and uh, so one of the things about this design is um, I talk about magic having ages. Like the design has ages. You see, the, the R&D have waves, but magic has ages. So the first age, or the golden age, is alpha through alliances. Um, and I'll do a podcast on this one at some point. But the first age is more about um, focusing on cards and just having cards that r- resonate. The second age was um, Mirage through um, Prophecy. And that was more about making blocks, sort of getting magic refocused on the idea that blocks exist. So Invasion was the start of the third wave, if you will. Uh, or not wave. That's, uh, that's, wave is, is the people. It's age, third age. Um, so Invasion introduced the idea of a theme, that the block was a multicolored block. It was about something. Before that, you know... Uh, it's sort of like, well, what's the block about? Well, here's the two new mechanics. That was the big thing, you know. What's Mirage about? Well, it's got African sort of setting, and it's about flinking and phasing. You know, Tempest, well, there's a story going on, and it's about shadow and buyback. You know, and Echo, uh, and uh, Urza Saga was, well, there's some more backstory, and it's about cycling and Echo, you know. Um, and the, the, the innovation of Invasion really was like, look, we're... The block is going to have a, a, a theme, um, and it's going to be about something sort of mechanically, have a mechanical identity. Um, and so in, Invasion obviously had a multicolored identity. So when it came time to do Odyssey, I was like, okay, I want an identity. And the one I was very excited about was the idea of doing the graveyard. Um, I, so uh, Weather the Light had messed around the graveyard, and the Dark had messed around a little bit with the graveyard. But there hadn't been a whole block on it. It had just been individual sets that messed around a little bit. And I thought there was a lot of potential there. Um, also, so the interesting thing was at this time, um, while this was going on, we, uh, the, current, um, the current creative team kind of was dissolving. And so Bill came to me and said, okay, Mark, I have nobody to do names and flavor text. Could you, for Odyssey, could you do names and flavor text? And I said, sure, sure, I can do names and flavor text. Um, and so during Odyssey was us building up the new creative team, um, which was a different creative team than the current creative team. But, um, and so I wasn't in charge of story. Other people were doing story. But I was in charge of names and flavor text. I did a lot of card concepting. I, uh, I, I mean, I was in charge of sort of making the cards make sense. Now, if you'll notice, I don't know if you noticed with Odyssey, for those that know Odyssey, um, I definitely pushed flavor text and names a little bit. Um, there's names like Need for Speed, and uh, th- uh, there's a card called Gorilla Titan that had the flavor text. It shows a grill holding up his hand, and the flavor text was, I want a banana this big. Um, and, and the funny thing about that was that originally we had a very serious piece of flavor text, and the art came in, and it was a silly-looking gorilla, who, by the way, if you've never noticed before, has a tail. No one ever notices that, but he has a tail, because in, obviously in Dominaria, giant gorillas have tails. Um... And I needed a new caption, so I just put it up on the board and had people write captions. And that was my favorite caption. Uh, and I thought it was very funny. It's funny. Um, it's one of the... There's a few pieces of flavor text in history that managed to make the top five and the bottom five uh, for flavor text in their own set. And that was one of them. That it was, it was loved, as I like to say, beloved and behated. Um, I'm still working on making behated to work. I'm just going to keep using behated until it becomes a, actually becomes English. One day Webster will call me up and go, Hello, Mr. Rosewater. We are proud to tell you that finally Behated is being added to the next edition. And then I'll have a little, a little, a little party. 
Okay, I don't think they actually call people, but in my in my dreams they do. Okay, so um, <laughs> this is the fun of me doing my podcast. I'm just jumping around. I'm not sure. Anyway, this is how my mind works. So, a little insight into my psyche. Okay, so we had our designers. I knew I wanted to do a gra- top-down graveyard theme. Um, okay, so let me talk about the two main mechanics because we were, we were still. Well, it's funny. So what happened was. Um, you know, Mirage had two main mechanics, Tempest had two main mechanics, Urza Saga had two main mechanics. So we get some Mercadian Masks. And Mercadian Masks didn't name them. We had mechanics. You know, we had rebels and mercenaries, and we had spell shapers, and we had mechanics, but we didn't name them. They, weren't, they, they didn't have a word. And everybody, I mean almost, almost everybody, were like, yeah, why, I, why didn't you guys put mechanics in Mercadian Masks? We're like, well, they're mechanics, there's new things, like just not naming them, we realized that, like, players, it just somehow mentally it wasn't there if we, they weren't named. And so, uh, after McKinney Mass was Invasion, so we started naming stuff again. I think Invasion only had buyback. Did it have... Uh, funny thing, is it had Domain and we didn't name Domain. Um, so anyway, we decided with Odyssey we're going back to having two named mechanics. Um, so let me talk about them. The two named mechanics are Flashback and Threshold. Um, both pretty influential in magic design, by the way. Um, okay, so Flashback... The, the history of Flashback is this, is once upon a time, I used to run the feature match area at the Pro Tours. Now, I did the podcast on the feature, the, the very first Pro Tour, and I explained that one of, my, probably my biggest contribution to the feature, I'm sorry, to the Pro Tour was the creation of feature matches and the feature match area. Um, and so what I did for most of the Pro Tour, I went to about eight years with the Pro Tours, um, every, every Pro Tour for about eight years was I ran the feature match area. So what that meant was I selected the matches, and then I was one of the judges. Usually I had a sec- uh, judge helping me out, uh, and the feature match was always four matches. Um, and so I spent a lot of time watching feature matches. Um, and one of my little games, some- sometimes, you know, Magic often has very dynamic, exciting games, but sometimes, you know, one person gets ahead. And in my head, whenever someone would get ahead, I would give little, little rules to the guy behind in my, in my head to see what he could do. Um, and I think uh, uh, this idea, um, I think Vanguard came out of this idea also, by the way. If, if Van- Vanguard and Flashback have a similar uh, origin. Um, but anyway, I would sit there and give them abilities. So one of the abilities I gave them was you can cast cards out of your graveyard. Um, and I always thought that was a neat idea. And so finally when we got to the graveyard, so I'm like, well, what are there just cards that let you cast them out of the graveyard? Um, and... I think early on, um, the, early, the first version of it, they just had one cost. Um, and the idea was you could play them on your hand or out of your graveyard, and um, they were a little expensive out of your hand, but the fact that you get them out of your graveyard made them good. Um, this, by the way, is a very common thing we try and design. Where we try to have a singular uh, casting cost, like Bestow was the same way. I, there's a lot of sets where we always start there, and then they just always like, well, we have you know more ability to to have knobs to turn and development have an easier time if we break apart the things, which we did here. Um, and the, uh, I think, I think the idea was always that they went away when you used them the second time because it felt kind of abusive. It felt too buyback if you just kept reusing them all the time. And so the idea of flashback was you got a second use out of your graveyard. Oh, also, here's a funny story. So we, we did a bunch of survey stuff. You know, we always do market research and we learned that at the time that the top two mechanics were buyback and flashback. And so we joked that the key to a popular mechanic is that you need the word back in it. 
And so for a while, we would name all our mechanics with back in them as it, like, you know, here's the name, but here's, a, here's the name we think we're going to go with. And we'd have, you know, a, a name with back in it. Uh, by the way, the actual answer is players like doing things twice, but, or more than once. Um, okay, so I introduced that. People liked it. it, it uh, it's turned out, by the way, flashback has turned out to be... So we have what I call evergreen mechanics, uh, which means we use them all... We, we, we're able to use them every set. Not all evergreen mechanics are used every set, but we're allowed to use them every set. And then, um, I don't know what to call this, deciduous? I'm not sure what the correct term for this is. Um, the idea of something that you could use not all the time, so like cycling and scry and flashback was like, well, we're going to use these more often than we use most mechanics, but, you know, in a five-year period, there's a decent chance you'll see it, you know, but it's not, it's not evergreen, but it's one document, semi-evergreen. I'm not quite sure what to call it. I need a name for it. Um, and flashback's definitely one of those mechanics that just has had a lot of legs. Um, I talk about lenticular design. Uh, the, something I work a lot on is trying to figure out designs that don't throw the beginner but give the advanced player a lot of stra- strategic depth. Um, and Flashback's been pretty good in that the beginner kind of gets it, you know, but they, they're not as vigilant about watching the graveyard, understanding when to use it, or understanding the value of having the second use. And so it has a lot of, you know, interesting gameplay um, for the advanced player. And it's not, you know, it, it's something that the beginner has proven to be able to get. Um, anyway, side note. Okay, so the other mechanic was Threshold. So Richard Garfield came up with Threshold. So I think Richard was very interested in the idea of cards that had an A-B state, meaning they were in an A state and they swifted to a B state based upon a, a threshold, some criteria that you had to meet. Um, I, I think the idea started with the graveyard. because I talked to Richard about how I was interested in the graveyard. And so Richard had been messing around with the idea of having a threshold. Um, and so um, the way it worked was, originally, um, the threshold would have a number, and if you had that many cards in your graveyard, then it turned on. Um, so for example, you might have threshold four, and threshold six, and threshold seven. Um, so the problem was, when you played that, it was mind-melting. I, I mean, because the problem was, so let's, let's say, for example, you have a four, six, and seven in play, you know, um, or whatever, I have a four in play, my opponent has a six in play, then I have a seven in play. And so it's like, okay, now I have five cards in my graveyard. Okay, so my four is turned on, but a six is turned off, and my seven is turned off, you know. But if he plays a card and I respond to it, then he'll have six, and his things will turn on, but my seven won't turn on yet. But I can cast a spell, and then if I do, I've said, like, hi, hey, hey, what's going on? Who is what? You know, and it just, it's hard enough to track A and B states. So we finally came to the conclusion that we wanted things on and off. I, I, well, first thing, we, we, the intermediary was we actually had little threshold and big threshold. Like, little, little Threshold was, like, four cards, and Big Threshold, I think, was seven. Um, and what we found was even that was too much. And so we ended up having one Threshold, which was seven. Um, and we did mess around with a whole bunch of different thresholds. We tried at different numbers. I think design actually handed it off at seven, and development, again, like, design messed around with it for a while, figured out seven was correct. Then development messed around with it for a while, figured out seven was correct. Um, and one of the problems about Threshold, for those that listen to my Lessons Learned podcast where I talked about um, Odyssey... Um, which I think is in Lesson Learned 1. Um, one of the problems was it ended up being... I made a classic mistake in which um, I was messing around with fundamentals to mess around with them because they were it was intellectually interesting to do so. So, for example, I talked about Brian Weissman introduced the idea of card advantage. So Odyssey said, you know what? Let's turn card advantage on his ear. 
So, for example, there was a cycle of cards that all... They were, in fact, they were dogs. They were a cycle of dogs. Okay, quick aside. Um, so, Randy Bueller just started working. Randy Bueller uh, was... Came... Was on the development for Innistrad... Not for Innistrad, sorry. For Invasion. And his first lead development, I believe, was Odyssey. And... Um, he, his friend was a guy named Eric Lauer, who's now the head developer. Um, by the way, Eric just, uh, and this has happened many weeks ago because I'm, I'm, I'm in the past, but Eric uh, recently just officially got the t- title of head developer, so he's my opposite on development. He's essentially been that for a while, but he got the title, which is really nice, so congratulations, Eric. Um, now, Eric was a friend of Randy's. In fact, Randy would get Eric um, hired later on, but um, Eric at the time was not working for Wizards, and Eric loved dogs. And so, um, uh, Randy made the cycle and asked me if we can make them dogs. And I said, I was in charge of the creative at the time, if you remember. So, uh, it was my call what the, what the creature types were. So I said, okay, we can make them dogs. Um, and that's where, um, wild mongrel and patrol hound and anyway, there's one in each color. Uh, and the white one was famous because you would discard it to give things first strike. And, um... The one of the problems with, with the set was the correct play was to discount was it that was to discard your whole hand to patrol hound to give it first strike even though you didn't care it had first strike and I'm like that's not really making sense to people so I have a hand of cards that I want to play but the correct move is to throw them away and not play them to give an ability to my creature that I don't even care if my creature has yeah wizards that sounds fun um and, you know, I don't want to throw my hand away to the hound. So, oh, quick aside, second aside. It's a side day. Um, although every day with me is a side day. Uh, hounds. So one of the things was when we first started making cards with dog on them, the first few were actually hounds. Um, I think one was like um, Ice Age had like a, a St. Bernard. Uh, actually, I don't know if St. Bernard is even a hound. Uh, but there were some early ones that were like hellhounds and stuff. And so there's this big fight whether to call them dog or call them hound. And because Hellhound was more fantasy-like, they wanted to call them hounds. And I had this big argument because I'm like, hounds are a subset of dog. Like, we do cat. We don't do panther. We do cat. And so we should do dog. And I could not win that fight. And every once in a while it comes back up. And every... I keep losing the fight. I don't know how I keep... It's a dog. Hound is a subset. Dog is the broad thing. Like... Anyway, I cannot win this fight. It keeps coming up, and I keep losing. And I, I, I like it is so frustrating when like you, you, you just like I, I know I should win this. I know I'm in the right, and I cannot win. But anyway, so hounds are hounds, and not dogs. Um, one day, one day, I'm, I'm stubborn. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, so anyway, one of the problems with Odyssey was it kind of made you do some stuff that if you understood what was going on, like it. I used to say that Odyssey might be one of the spiky sets we ever made. Because if you understood, oh, I see, I need to throw away cards because that actually is advantageous. And, oh, it's interesting. Oh, card advantage isn't, doesn't work, you know. That if you understand the nuances. But the problem was that I made a set that, like, you know, you had to be very experienced to even understand what was going on. And the, 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 low, the low-end user was, it was not fun for them. Um, and so that was one of the big problems with Odyssey, one of the lessons of Odyssey. Um, but at the time, we were trying to enable um, Threshold and Flashback. And so one of the ways that we did that was, you know, gave you a lot of ways to get cards in your graveyard. Um, and, you know, uh, this, this is going to be a two-parter, so 
I, I decided I, I'm going to wait for next week to get into how we got because uh, we started with Graveyard, um, and what happened was that um, it spread from there. And so one of the things that I'm famous for, uh, or was in the early days, I've gotten a lot better, was like when I turned in Tempest, it was chock full. I mean, Tempest, for example, not only had Shadow and um, Buyback, it also had Echo and Cycling. Yes, both mechanics from the set that came after it were in it. Um, and we had a whole bunch of other mechanics. It had cards. Like, there was a point in time where a card from Tempest Design went, what was in a finished product for like three years or something. And starting with Weatherlight, the set before it. Weatherlight borrowed Gemstone Mine from it. Um, it's called Three Shot City of Brass. And, um, anyway. So I was pretty well known at the time for overstuffing my sets. Um, and by the way, this is a very common early designer thing, which is you get a set. Oh my God, you're so excited. Oh my God, I finally, I get to make magic. I get to make a magic set. I have so many ideas. And you just use them all, you know. Uh, I don't know whether there's this fear that you don't know whether you'll have another chance. I don't know if you're just so excited that you want to demonstrate what you can do. But beginning designers, like one of the things which is funny is what you really want to do is say, what is the least I need to do to accomplish my task? Because designs are a resource. You don't want to waste a resource, you know. And that... Um, the way I, I sort of explain it is like, let's say I want to make my kids happy, you know, um, and so I take them for some dessert and I give them some dessert, but I don't need to take them for ice cream and fudge and popsicles and donuts and, you know, I don't need, I need, I need to give them enough that they're happy and they have their dessert and they're filled, but I don't need like, you know, that you don't need to overdo it and that with design it's important. And this is true, by the way, of any design, which is I talk about how, uh, in writing, they, they say, you know, if you're going to make a movie, uh, you know, the mo- if, if the line can be pulled from the movie, if the scene can be pulled from the movie, if, if anything can be pulled from the movie, pull it. If the movie will exist without one portion of it, that it doesn't need it to survive, then it is not necessary and yank it. You know, and writing is all about getting the, the bare minimum of what you need. Turns out, game design is the same way. Game design is figure out what you need, do the minimum of what you need, and, and make it, I mean, it needs to deliver what it needs to deliver. I'm not saying do nothing, but I'm saying you have to figure out not is what's the least you need. You know, what's the least you need to accomplish the task at hand. And magic is a lot of things going on. It's complex. There's a lot of things that need set. And it's not that we don't load up sets with things, but we're careful not to overload sets. But back in the day, way back in the day, because uh, when I talk about Odyssey, by the way, Odyssey came out in 2001, the fall of 2001. So this was a while ago. Although, I... Interestingly enough, I had been at Wizards for a while before I did Odyssey, but um, I've been at Wizards a long time. Uh, in fact, by the time you hear this, I will have been at Wizards for 18 years, which still kind of boggles my mind that basically I, I, I could graduate from Wizards High. Um, okay, so I see my work. So the reason I didn't want to get into this part, and I'm saving this for part two, is so we started with, we started with the graveyard, and from there, we went everywhere. And so, uh, in my next installment, my next podcast, I want to talk about kind of how we started with a very simple task of doing a graveyard set and ended up doing all sorts of crazy things. Um, and also, eventually, I will talk about some cards and talk about how different things came to be. Also, because this set, um, I was in charge of the creative, I have a whole mess of stories about the creative. So I will share uh, those with you as well. Um, but right now, i got to go inside because... It is time for me to be making magic.
I'll talk to you. Sorry. I'll talk to you guys next time. Uh, it was fun having you.